Okay, folks, we have another edition of the Wacky World of Diabetes podcast, and I'm trying to bring new people in. And I've known Amy Tendrick for God knows how many years. And the best way I'm going to describe Amy is she's probably one of the best patient advocates I've ever had the pleasure of meeting. So welcome to the podcast, Amy. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me. Uh, it's my pleasure. So so before we get into the gist of this, you know, I asked all my guests the same question, you know, how did you get here? Tell us about your diabetes journey and, and what you're doing these days. Okay. Well, I was chuckling when you said bring in new people because I'm, I'm pretty OG these days. <laughs> so I was one of the first patient bloggers overall in the country, as far as I know, let alone someone doing a blog about living with diabetes. So what happened to me is that I have a background in journalism and high-tech uh, communications. I was working as a freelance kind of technology writer, and I had just had my third child, and then it was 2003, and I was I got very ill, <laughs> ended up in the hospital for a week, and was told that I had type 2 diabetes, which I thought was very strange, even not knowing much about it, because I was just so emaciated and just, you know, exhausted and whatnot. So to kind of make a long story short, I discovered pretty quickly that I actually had adult onset type 1, you know, well, juvenile, but they were still calling juvenile diabetes and feeling kind of like the only adult on the planet who would get this illness. And, you know, at the time, there was no social media, or we were just on the verge of that sort of revolution taking place. So I actually just started to research it myself and started realizing how fascinating it is and that there are all of this technology being built around glucose monitoring and insulin delivery. And it's really funny. So my husband actually went to this new media event at the time. That's what they were calling it in those days and learned about this new thing called blogging and came home and said, you're going to be a blogger. It's, it's your calling. And I was like, I'm going to do what? <laughs> so again, I ended up starting Diabetes Mine. I think it went live in like January of 2005 and was one of the first patient blogs. Got picked up in a story early on in the Wall Street Journal about patient blogging. And from there, it was kind of like ricocheted. I mean, that just upped the visibility and a bunch of people sort of reached out. And I started getting a lot of comments on my posts, which was amazing at the time. And and, you know, it's just been this amazing journey since then. Obviously, this whole community of bloggers grew up around us. First, we were just a couple of dozen people. We all knew each other really well. And then it just kept blossoming and blossoming. And over the years, I have been involved in a lot of sort of new technologies. I helped create an online sort of Facebook-like forum for people with diabetes at the time that was called Diabetic Connect that had hundreds of thousands of people on, on board for that platform. I become very involved in following technology innovation. That was always kind of my, my interest and my bailiwick. In fact, I was one of the first people, I think the first sort of patient journalist to ever kind of infiltrate the ADA event. So I had press credentials and this is 2005. And I discovered at the last minute that the ADA's big annual meeting was going to be in San Diego that year. And I was like, okay, well, that's not very far. I could just go down there and, you know, sort of crash the event. And I remember wandering, you know, walking around, introducing myself and, you know, saying I'm a patient blogger and people were like, you're a what? <laughs> what are you doing here? You know, but it was really fun to be able to, as a patient, to see how these technologies were being presented and marketed to healthcare professionals to see what discussions were going on on different tracks about, you know, patient support, about behavioral issues in particular, I thought were interesting. So, you know, diabetes mind has just grown and grown over the years and two things happened. I know I'm kind of monologuing here, so let me know if you want to interrupt me, but um, 
No, no, you're doing great. So no, so two things happened. So the publication itself really became this, you know, we call it a diabetes newspaper with a personal twist. You know, we, so I brought on now who's been with me for like 10 or 11 years, Mike Hoskins, who is another type one advocate who also has a background in journalism. He's kind of my right hand man on the blog. And we now also use, you know, freelance writers. And we joined a company called Healthline Media in 2015, which is the fastest growing online health publisher. They have, you know, I don't know, upwards of, I think, I think now they're at something like 40 million consumer visitors per month, extremely strong content. So we're part of that group for the editorial side of it. But as you know, David, the other thing that I do is this series of events, that forums that bring together leaders in diabetes innovation. And that whole thing started when I pen this open letter to Steve Jobs, kind of complaining, basically, this is back in 2008, I believe it was kind of complaining that medical technology was not keeping up with consumer technology, and that we had these amazing little devices just to listen to music. And yet the devices that we had to wear and carry with us to monitor our illness were nowhere near as sleek or, you know, desirable or customizable or any of those things. So that just kind of launched this whole campaign around design of medical devices. And we launched something called the Diabetes Mind Design Challenge, which was a what I believe is the was sort of the first patient led open crowdsourcing competition where we said, hey, we're patients just like you. Like if you have an idea for a new tool, whether it's a board game for teaching people or whether it's some piece of technology for making life better with diabetes, we want to hear about it. And we got a grant from the California Healthcare Foundation. We got, you know, some Stanford people involved. We got JDRF to support this thing and, you know, brought in a lot of high level people like Steve Edelman, TCOID was a big supporter and gave out prize money and did this for like four years. And it was super cool. And the cool thing was that some of the technology, obviously, that people presented early on has now come to fruition, maybe not in the exact form, but a lot of those ideas, definitely everything of the, you know, iPhone controlled. But the other really exciting output of that was that some of those young people who were like graduate students at Northwestern and whatnot actually got jobs in, you know, with Medtronic, with other companies in this sort of next generation of thinkers, you know, who are working in the industry. And, you know, that was, we felt like that was a big win that we could help kind of push that forward. And then after doing that competition for like four years and having a great time with it, as you know, these kind of innovation competitions became a lot more popular and whatnot. So we said, well, what else can we do? And that was when we got the idea to launch this series of events around like forums to bring together the different groups of people working on innovation and diabetes care. So med tech, pharma companies, regulators, patients, yeah. researchers, designers. Yeah. Well, over the years, now this is kind of one reason I'm very glad to have you as a guest is you know, you interact with a lot of other patients, okay? What I call the normal folk with diabetes, not you know, not people like me or some, you know, some of the others, you know, we're, you know, we're a little bit different because of the access that we have and the people that we know. What have you noticed from, like I said, from a normal patient, what's the biggest difference between then and now? Well, I mean, a lot of it mirrors what's going on in our society. So I feel like, you know, things got... um a little more contentious in the last four years. You know, people are angrier and they're more critical. I think when we first started this online diabetes community, there was just this kumbaya sense of like, everyone was so excited to have that camaraderie to connect. So a lot of it was just us like kind of patting ourselves on the back that we'd found each other. And the and people were just sort of in this glow of peer support and we're really happy about it. 
And I think that that's still true that people, but now it's more taken for granted. Like now when people are newly diagnosed, they have more of a sense of, hey, I can go right to Instagram or, you know, Twitter, and I'm going to find a bunch of people who can talk about this with me because I know they're going to be there, you know? So that's no longer so exciting and, and shiny and new. But I think things obviously like the insulin pricing crisis, which is a true, true problem. Is that the biggest reason? No, you said they were angry. Is that the biggest thing they're angry about? I think there's, yes. I mean, we had that sense early on too, at, you know, the, that we had this sort of love-hate relationship with the pharma companies, right? That they keep us alive by creating these ma- amazing medicines and devices, but at the same time we felt exploited and we feel that they're, you know, profits over patients. So, I mean, all of that has kind of, you know, come now into this big volcano, I think, because also the pricing crisis has become so acute that people are literally dying. And there's people all over the country trying to create local legislation and their state level. I think what's different. So this is all like bubbling up. And it's but when I say it's contentious, I think that I'm seeing more patients kind of taking pot shots at each other, which is unfortunate. You know, people, the, the community is so much bigger. And then there are people who came into it later and saw this sort of old guard of people, which I totally understand and felt like, well, who said they represent me? You know, that's not my voice. So they're, they're people creating a lot of new nonprofit organizations that are trying to help in new and different ways. And I, it's great. I think it it's great. It's just, I, I think that's a natural kind of evolution of a community like that as it grows and it gets more diverse. You know, you have more voices and you're going to have more people who say, well, I don't feel represented by that. So I need to create a new channel for, you know, to be represented. So it's just become a lot more multifaceted. And I think because of the this, you know, crisis of access has created a lot of angst, as it should. You know, it's a real problem that needs to be addressed. So are you finding that there's a I don't even know if I want to use the word disconnect, but there is a, a difference between what you what a type one does social media wise and what a type two does? Is, is there that schism? Well, traditionally, yes. You know, that's kind of been like this sort of conventional knowledge, you know, that it, clearly the really active online community was started by people with type one who were just so intensely trying to manage their insulin and felt that they were in more immediate danger of having highs and lows. And so they tend to be the early adopters of a lot of things, including social media. Thankfully, we're seeing a lot more voices. I think of, you know, type twos. And one thing, you know, we, my, my group Diabetes Mind, we do a lot of our own independent research projects going into these events. And in 2017, so it's a couple of years back now, we did this netnographic study of what people with diabetes are doing online. And it was very interesting. Netnography, in case you're not familiar, is the idea of doing sort of like an ethnographic study in an online environment. So you kind of, you know, the researchers kind of embed themselves and sort of be, be users and sort of observe and take notes on trends and that sort of stuff. And not surprisingly, we found that the activity was still primarily from people with type 1 or at least people who are on insulin and had those issues. And that the type 2 conversations tended to be more like on faith, at least at the time. Okay, this is 2017. So remember, things change incredibly quickly. But there was more Facebook groups and obviously more discussions about things like diet and weight loss among the type 2 group, type 2 people who are active online than the type 1 folks who, you know, sort of clustered around, you know, hot new technology and like th- they were starting to do things like tutorials to show each other how to, you know, put in the new sensor from from this company or that company. So, you know, it, there's it's still sort of an uneven distribution of, I think, more type ones or parents of type ones who are actively involved. But I think you're seeing a lot more people, you know, now with type two feeling that they should have a voice and they want to have a voice. 
and they're getting active and they don't have to launch their own blog now. That's the thing is you can just go up on Instagram and just start putting stuff up. And, you know, it's an easier entry point because, you know, a blog is a publication that takes a lot of, you know, dedication, whereas like, you know, it's kind of cool that you can have a Twitter feed or in particular, Instagram has given people a chance to kind of build their personal brand through mainly photos, but also, you know, like short content that can be very engaging. So there's different ways for people to sort of enter now, which is kind of interesting. And TikTok is becoming a whole new thing. Patient advocacy on TikTok is exploding right now. Now, are you okay? Now, there's a there's you know, it's funny that you mentioned old school, like I guess is me because <laughs> I've been doing this for so damn long. And new school, a lot of the physicians, endocrinologists, diabetologists, whatever, they've seen some negative impacts of social media where you see these people promoting things that aren't necessarily either a FDA approved or b have no medical basis for publication how do you how does how do you deal with that well that's just that's such a kind of classic old school like oh my god you're gonna get false information online i mean clearly you could get if someone's trying to hack you know an herbal supplement they can do it in any channel it could be through a newspaper it could be on the radio it could be you know now we all look at social media so they put it on social media so i mean clearly there's always going to be the sort of bad actors who are trying to peddle something that's garbage. You know, one of the advantages of this sort of community crowdsourced environment is that people can speak out and report that person or, you know, just basically shout them down. And we found that in the forums we're active on, that's very much the case. And if you look at forums that are really popular, like Diabetes Daily, I mean, it's moderated, they get people off there if they're, you know, and if someone posts says, well, just give your kids cinnamon, you're gonna, they're going to do great. You know, the, the community will go bananas on that person and just basically say, you have got to be kidding me. So, you know, the fact that it's two way communication is very helpful. So I, you know, I think the what to me is a little bit bit more difficult is just like with anything else with social media, people compare themselves. So if there's like young people who see someone else saying they have the super perfect A1C all the time, and then they that makes that other person feel like they're failing, you know, that could be a little bit harder to quantify and deal with. But I mean, in terms of sources, it's just like with any other media that you consume, you have to be a good consumer and, and be aware of what looks like something that, you know, is completely unvetted. And just if it's, someone's trying to peddle some garbage, you just, you've got to consider the source and you have to be able to recognize that. You know? Are your patients, well, I don't want to call them patients. I don't even know what to call them, customers, consumers, whatever. Do they ask things of you, like, do they want you to play a role as like an intermediary intermediary between you? Because you also talk to the companies all the time and, you know, you know them all. And are they asking things of you saying, hey, can you do this for me? Can you help me with, you know, tandem, Dexcom, Inslet, whatever? Um, so not directly. I mean, well, sometimes we get emails to asking individually for favors and we have to say, you know, that's not our job. <laughs> but I mean, so I kind of wear two hats. One is as this journalist who's been around this patient blogger slash journalist who's been around this community for so long that so people we get a lot of editorial requests people say hey can you do a story about that new drug that's coming out or can you look into you know what is tandem doing with their whatever you know refund policy have they you know do you did you can you find that stuff out and report on it so we get a lot of that kind of stuff which is great because it gives us topics to investigate and we feel we'd help the community that way and then the other part of it is through these events you know, a big priority of ours is to always bring the patient voice. And so for, for years, we've been bringing in 
So when we were doing all the events in person, we would have this scholarship program for the fall event where we'd bring in like 10 to 12 people that we would select through this kind of, it was, it's kind of like applying for, yeah, for like a scholarship. And we bring them in from around the country, sometimes around the world to, to have their voice. And we'd also post and say, hey, we're doing this event coming up. We are going to have the ear of like leaders from all the major pharma companies and med tech companies. Is there, we would say, do you, is there some question you want to ask? Or, you know, we've also, especially since COVID, we've now um, gone online with the events. We've been able to share the content of the events more broadly with the community, which is really great that we can say, okay, people, after the fact, after the event has happened, you can now also view these amazing presentations and demos and things that were we were privy to in this small forum. So I think people get a lot out of that as well. And they, you know, yeah, they want to know what's basically it's like people want an inside view. And you know, that's why they come to you, right? And then they, and they come to us at oftentimes and say, can you find out about this? And you know, how can we learn more about this? You know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because I've been asking all of my guests about what role they see for digital diabetes, what I call digital diabetes. And I've gotten all different kinds of answers. What, you know, what, what do you see for that? Well, yeah, that's interesting. I think that to me, it's just like an evolution of how our world is working. What we used to call e-commerce and we used to get all worked up about, you know, the fact that people electronic purchasing, oh my goodness. And now it's just called purchasing, right? Now we just shop. And to me, I think that's exactly what's going to happen in medicine. Right now we're all still kind of blown away and, and very conscious of the fact that things are digital. Oh my goodness, it's, it's going to be online and you're, you're using a platform, but soon that's just going to be medicine. That's it's just, just how the tools we use, just like we use them for, you know, financial, for banking, for shopping, for everything else we do in our lives. So I think the fact that something is digital will no longer be that front and center anymore. It'll just be normal. So in that sense, I think it'll become just so common that people will have virtual visits, maybe not all your visits, but a lot of your visits can be done virtually, or that you'll have some kind of a tool that will gather your data and share it with your provider. Like that's still like a optional right now. And it still seems kind of revolutionary. But at some point, I, I feel like that'll just be standard of care. And, you know, it'll be kind of crazy to think you wouldn't do that, because that's how you monitor diabetes, right? Is there going along those lines, you know, over the years, you've seen an evolution of, you know, technology, is there one, or maybe you could list maybe the top three things that your consumers say, hey, this has changed my life. Is there three things that you could think of that? Well, our group, which obviously skews very highly type one and, and parents of type one, you know, I would say CGM is the number one thing that's changed people's lives. Yeah. Because if you ask people anecdotally or otherwise, um, you know, if you had to give up something for your diabetes care, they would definitely hold on to that CGM over their insulin pump. Even they say the CGM is the thing, you know, the insulin pump is great, but it really is just a way to get the insulin in. And uh, CGM is what helps me see what's going on. So I would say that's definitely number one. You know, beyond that, it's probably a mix of, you know, again, people in our environment tend to skew towards like they're so appreciative of all the online resources and again the ability to find a community online you know it's so interesting to me when i see families that are diagnosed you know now or in the last let's say five or six years like it's just so natural to them like oh yeah of course i'm gonna go online i'm gonna find all these people to talk to there's i can find all the other parents and they'll tell me what to do there's a forum here there's a forum there but a lot of us are remember <laughs> that there wasn't that for decades and decades and that we were so alone so 
I think a lot of people would say just that readily available community and all this really good information that is not like when I started out my journey, I went to the computer and I typed something in and, you know, I get a million medical journal references, which didn't answer any of my real world questions. I'm like, wait a minute. So where am I supposed to carry all this crap in my purse? Like, you know, just, <laughs> I wanted to talk to a, you know, or just, you know, basic things like, okay, if I'm going to renew my driver's license, do I have to tell them that I have diabetes? Like, I don't, you know, all these questions. And, and I think now it's just so much easier to find, you know, people's lived experiences and to ask those kind of questions of each other. So I would say that's a huge one for people, right? That sort of community and that readily available kind of life information. <laughs> yeah. And then, I mean, beyond that, I think for those who use it, obviously, like, you know, looping and these new systems are just absolutely game changers. But obviously, that's a very tiny proportion of the overall people that, you know, are, are doing that now. But I also think just, you know, Again, especially now since COVID, a lot, you know, we just did a story about it recently. A lot of people who thought they would not like to have online doctor's appointments have actually found that it's really convenient and that they get just as good attention of their doctor, sometimes maybe even better, and they don't have to hassle. And I know like as a working mom for myself, that was always a huge deal that just taking the time out to drive into the city, park my car, half the time I would get a parking ticket because I was in such a hurry and it's crazy in San Francisco and, you know, <laughs> and, or I, and back in the day I had to get a babysitter and, you know, all these things. So these virtual visits, I think, are are becoming and also slash virtual connection. So if you use something like a OneDrop or a MySugar, you can even through your app, you're able to connect with a healthcare professional and ask questions and get support, which is amazing. You know, we never had anything like that before. Uh, do you notice either regional gender or age differences between what you're getting? You know, we don't track that data. So I, I mean, I could only sort of take an educated guess at that. But it's interesting, we when we see the parent crowd, like they're so on it and so intense. And I totally get that. If you have a child with type one, like you're going all in. <laughs> and I feel like they're kind of more militant. They're the mega early adopters of everything. Because of course, you want your best for your child. So we find that like they are, you know, that group tends to be kind of like gung ho. And in fact, that's where you get a little bit of backlash of like, what if your child is like, Oh, my God, I don't want to wear this thing. You know, I don't want I need to I need a break. I want to take my CGM or my pump off for a week. You know, some parents are freaking out and recently reported on that. At diabetes mind as well, this sort of notion of like, it's, it's important to know the sort of old fashioned way of managing your diabetes so that if your CGM poops out or, you know, you, <laughs> or there's some kind of a server glitch that you're not losing your mind, you know, that you're going to be okay, you know what to do. And that you also realize that, you know, it's not our God given right to have these devices work every second of every day, like things happen, you know, and you need to be able to handle that. So, you know, that's, I think that's important too, that, that to remember, you know, this sort of over-reliance on technology can create stress as well. Now, you, you deal a lot with industry. And do you think, listen, every executive says they get it, okay? Well, that's kind of the PR thing, you know, oh, yeah, we talk to patients, yada, yada, yada. You talk to industry all the time. Do you think they get it? To varying degrees, yes. <laughs> but I mean, I know that it, it, like in any industry, when you work for a particular vendor, brand, manufacturer, you are seeped in that mentality of, the, of talking about their products. And I remember back in the day when it was, we were mainly talking about finger stick meters and these companies were just so wrapped up in, you know, ever, all the details of their brand. And, you know, it was sort of shocking to them when they did some research and realized that people don't really care about the brand. They're not even aware of the brand. Like they just want, you know, they want to have a little light on there so they can do it. You know, you do their finger stick meter in the, in a movie theater or at night. They want to, they want a small blood drop. They just, they want 
the least, you know, I think there's becoming an increasing awareness that people want to do the least possible for their diabetes and, and get the best possible outcome. So we're not all going like, oh my God, I want the mega advanced, you know, super features. I want the features that make it the least obtrusive. So I think there's some recognition of that. And that's really, really important. But the practicality of living with diabetes, like when I know that like in a given day, like we're running around doing 10,000 things. The last thing I want to do is like sit down and have to recalibrate or remess or re-enter or think about this. So I think like <laughs> still, there's still this idea that patients are, you know, more tuned into the details of their product than, than we probably are. <laughs> if that makes sense. <laughs> well, no, it makes sense to me. I get, yeah. <laughs> I get that. So where do you see your, well, let's, Put it this way, where do you see your brand going? What What's next for you? Oh, that's an interesting question. It's funny. People ask me that a lot. And I mean, I still think of myself as like <laughs> more of an advocate than a brand. And like I set out to, to help this community in some way that I can. And I feel like every advocate kind of brings their whatever they have to the game. Like some people are really, you know, well-versed in sports. And so they create an, you know, a way to support people with athletics. And some people are, you know, interested in, you know, supporting parents and some people know how to raise money for research and they do that. And this is kind of what I know how to do, which is journalism and bringing people together for these events and trying to kind of like break down barriers and help people move on. So I continue to love doing that. I don't know. It's really hard to say. Like, I mean, even with new channels of social media, it's like, who would have thought? Who would have thought that, you know, there would be such a thing as as TikTok and, you know, <laughs> and that people would be doing actual diabetes, informative diabetes stuff on this crazy channel that has these tiny little mini videos. So it's difficult to say, but I would say that the events, I never really, you know, was able to predict, like, where is this going to go? And, you know, they've been incredibly popular. I think people, you know, there's gonna I'll probably always be value in bringing people together to kind of share and showcase what's new and what's going on and try to kind of, as I said, sort of get people from different stakeholder groups to kind of roll up their sleeves and work on something together and really can communicate on a human level and talk about the real issues. You know, like I said, the things that patients care about in real life and the barriers in real life. So I think that, you know, we'll continue to do that in some form, whether it continues to be online or we go back to in-person events. I think I definitely see that happening in terms of the, you know, our online reporting, I, you know, I don't know. And you know, what's so interesting is you, you've got this mix of an audience. You're always going to have people who are new to diabetes or coming in and who don't, who haven't read all those hundred articles we've already written about, you know, DKA or whatever the topic, getting pregnant with diabetes. You know, so there's always going to be a need for basic information for, you know, guides and primers. And, and thankfully, because we're advancing in the tools and treatments available, there's always new stuff to tell people about. So, you know, I don't, I think that sort of this sort of information society thing is not going anywhere. There's always going to be a need for that. And we hope to be at the middle of that, helping people. <laughs> you know. have, have you gotten any kind of feedback from your constituency about like the role of the JDRF, the ADA, you know, what they see there? Are they pleased? Are they displeased? Oh, absolutely. Over the years, there's been a lot of criticism, as you might imagine, of these big organizations. Like early on, when we first started out, everybody was super anti-ADA. Um, I think that just 
in particular, adult, adults with type one and, and myself included at the time felt very, like completely disconnected because ADA was sort of seemed to be more focused on obviously physicians and type two. JDRF was all about the kids and the family. So if you're an adult with type one, you're like, where do I fit in? You know, and now thankfully, I mean, I was pretty vocal criticizing those organizations about that in the early days. And thankfully, that's changed a lot. JDRF has certainly done a lot to embrace adults with type one and ADA is working to be more inclusive overall. But now we have new, you know, this new powerhouse organizations like Beyond Type One, which came in and sort of like created this sort of new feel and in, in a place that felt like it was a home for adults with type one. Obviously, the diatribe folks have done a great job. You know, they do a lot of research, but they also have their, you know, their diatribe foundation and their newsletter that is helping people to feel represented who ne- didn't necessarily, you know, ascribe to very closely to either of the big organizations. But over time, of course, obviously, criticism comes up, there were some scandals, JDRF had some issues with, you know, some people inside some embezzlement that went on and whatnot. And, you know, people were super upset about it, as they should be. It was upsetting, you know. And then there was the whole, with JDRF over the years, the whole contention about them putting so much effort and money into technology and sort of people felt like they were abandoning their mission to go after the cure. And that was a whole conversation. And as you know, um, Jeffrey Brewer at the time, who, who was the CEO, was very vocal about saying, we are still interested in the cure, don't get us wrong, but we want to support better treatments for the here and now. And I think people have thankfully gotten mostly on board with that. So, but yeah, and, we, and I think ADA is one of the biggest criticisms there has just been the dietary guidelines and people feeling like they weren't, you know, embracing known benefits of low carb, and they were kind of in, based on that, not giving good advice. Um, you know, I think that's been tempered a bit now. They've, they're just, you know, big organizations, just like trying to, you know, move the Titanic, right? It takes them a while to kind of rejigger their direction they're going in. But I think the thing about ADA that people had to remember is that it really started out as a professional organization for physicians to connect people, you know, who are doing scientific research. It wasn't necessarily meant to be this big patient-led advocacy group. So, you know, there's been some growing pains there. There will always be things I think that people (laughs) have to complain about. But I mean, I'm grateful that they exist because they do so much great work, especially at the legislative level, you know, at the national level, getting funding for really important research and anti-discrimination legislation, et cetera. And I think those things, you know, just for those things alone, it's really important that we have those big organizations representing us. Now, one last question. If you look out, Five, 10 years. Let's let's go 10 years, not five years. Let's go 10 years. That's impossible. You know that, David. <laughs> you know, that's why, you know, we, we're going to see, you know, we want to see what's in your head there. You know, if you look, what, what do you what do you think it will look like? Okay, I'll split the difference. Seven years from today, what do you think it's going to look like out there? I don't know. You know, if you'd asked me that seven or 10 years ago, what would I be doing now? I probably have said, I don't even know if I would be doing diabetes mine, but we're still here. So it definitely feels like in some ways, like, oh, it's, it hasn't, you know, nothing's changed that much. It's all the same stuff. But on the, but then um, from another viewpoint, you realize like, wow, things have changed incredibly. Like I use a homemade, you know, loop app now. I'm also using inhalable insulin, you know, things that were no, in no way in my imagination seven or 10 years ago. And, you know, it's really made an impact on my life. And it's really exciting. And, you know, again, our audience has grown and we've been able to, through these events, we've been able to connect people, help people from the DIY community get hired by a lot of the organizations or have groups creating patient advisory boards to really help get the patient voice in there. And 
pilot projects, collaborations. So things are definitely moving. It just, it kind of feels as you're cruising along, like, oh God, we're still having that same conversation about who owns the data and interoperability and access and who is this technology really for? I mean, you, some of those conversations just seem to turn on and on, but there's been a lot of change. And like I said, I really, it really hits me when I see people who are newly diagnosed now and the world that they're coming into versus where we were, you know, 10 years ago, even, you know. That's a good enough answer for me, and I appreciate you taking the time. Of course. Thank you. <laughs> so that, that, there you go, ladies and gentlemen, a patient advocate point of view from, from a business publication. <laughs> Thank you, David. <laughs>